Good morning, Grace Marietta. Ooh, I love that sound. The acoustics in this room is amazing. <sighs> I just sense in this room the hunger and the appetite. Just hungry people here this morning. And the verse that we're going to be honing in on is Matthew 5, 6. Blessed. Someone say blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they might be filled. They might be filled. Not might, not maybe, but I love the King James translation, shall. They shall be filled. Can I pray for us this morning? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you hungry, thirsty for your presence, for your ordering of things, for your righteousness, for your justice. Father, we thank you that you are true to your word and you promised to us that those who hunger and thirst, we will be filled. And so for the longing hearts, the yearning hearts today, this morning, Father, I pray that you would meet them specifically right where they are. Whether they're hungry for a word from God or a healing in their physical body, I pray even through the declaration of your word that people would be healed. Hearts would be made whole. Paradigms would be shifted. And Father, we would see your beauty and your glory this morning. And so Lord, we say we are hungry for you. And so Lord, I ask that you would anoint my words, anoint my mind to serve your people well. We do this all in your name. And God's people say, amen, amen, amen. So I'm excited. This verse is a verse that's dear to my heart. It's etched in my history with God. But recently, my paradigm, my understanding of this verse has shifted a bit. Someone say shifted. And I know you all are going through the ways of Jesus. And I just love how you're focusing on the way, because oftentimes churches focus on the truth of Jesus, but not the way of Jesus. And a lot of us are yearning for the life of Jesus, but if we don't have the way of Jesus combined with the truth of Jesus, we won't have experience with the life of Jesus. Let me say that again. Oftentimes as believers, we focus simply on the truth of Jesus, and we separate the truth of Jesus from the way of Jesus, and because of that, there are obstacles in our ways from experiencing the life of Jesus. And so today, we're going to be focusing on a particular way of Jesus, and that way is the way of honesty. And when I think about the ways of Jesus, a picture that comes to my mind is an undercurrent. How many of you all know what an undercurrent is? An undercurrent is a body of water beneath the surface that's actually going into the opposite direction of the surface level. So Webster's definition says a current of water below the surface and moving in a different direction from any surface current. 
Another definition says an underlying influence. Someone say influence. An underlining influence, especially one that is contrary to the prevailing atmosphere and is not expressed openly. When I think about the way of Jesus, it is countercultural. It goes in the opposite direction of the prevailing atmosphere of society. And tonight, this morning, Jesus actually inviting us into a particular way, which is the way of honesty, that's countercultural in a climate fueled by superficiality, deceit, propaganda, misinformation. And the thing about undercurrents is that you have to go beneath the surface to get caught up. And undercurrents are really dangerous. And I think about the way of Jesus, us going beneath the surface, and it costing us something. It actually costing us something to go beneath the surface, maybe even our own lives. And so there's three invitations that I want to invite you all to go beneath the surface today. The first invitation is being honest with the text. The second is actually being honest with our view of society and others. And the third is an invitation of being honest with ourselves. Now, if you guys can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And so I will read Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Most translations has this word righteousness present. And so with our Western lenses, we have the predisposition to view righteousness from an individualistic perspective. When we think about righteousness, we think about personal righteousness. How am I in right standing? How am I in right standing with God? But I love the New Testament scholars' approach to the text. He translates it this way. Wonderful news for those who hunger and thirst for God's justice. Someone say justice. You're going to be satisfied. So N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, and he's done deep research of all the New Testament, and he leans towards using the word justice versus righteousness. Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, communicates, blessed are those who burn with a desire for things to be made right. What if this verse, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what if this verse was also about societal justice and not solely personal righteousness. Let me ask that question again. What if this verse wasn't just about personal righteousness, but it was about societal 
justice? Could it be that rightly relating with our neighbor, justice, is directly correlated to our righteousness, directly correlated to us rightly relating with God? I want to propose something today, that justice and righteousness were never meant to be separated. Justice and righteousness were never meant to be separated. There's a false dichotomy that is present with these two words. They're also, they're, they're right, they're opposite sides of the same coin. I love this quote from Jessica Nicholas. It says, doing justice And righteousness means loving the things that lead to life. We get that, right? And actively righting the wrongs that keep people from experiencing life as God created it to be. It means honoring and expressing God's intended order and his ways of life. That means doing the things that lead to wholeness, freedom, and prosperity for all people and his physical world. Righteousness finds its full expression through justice. And justice is actually the vehicle in which righteousness is established on this earth. Let me say that again. Righteousness is actually expressed. It finds its full expression through us working out justice. And so can I say this? Righteousness was never about us. We made it about us. Righteousness has always been about the righteous God allowing his righteous rule to be on earth. And we have the invitation to be a part of that. And now as we look at this verse, I think oftentimes we zone in and we kind of separate the Beatitudes from the original context. Right now, Jesus is communicating this Sermon on the Mount, people say, is the constitution of the kingdom of God. And so he's communicating this in a particular context. Number one, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Number two, Jesus recently denied convenience for obedience. In Matthew 4, you'll look at Jesus denying appetite, denying approval, denying ambition, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of his father. Jesus resisted appetite and applause and ambition. I like to call these also the obstacles to justice. For God's words, his works, and his ways. And so Jesus' countercultural ministry actually began in the wilderness. The wilderness was a place that prepared him for the temptation for his public ministry. He's going to be facing the temptation of applause, the the temptation of ambition, the temptation of approval all throughout his ministry. And what laid the foundation for him to be a person of integrity was in the private. And so he was able to overcome the obstacles of justice in the secret place. And I sense that the Lord is inviting us to look at our secret places and look at our own personal hearts to see, man, how can approval, ambition, and appetite be an obstacle for me working out God's justice on this earth? 
The private temptations prepared him for his public responsibility. Now, who was Jesus speaking to and about? Let's go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. So if you're on your iPhone, you can just scroll up a little bit. And if you have a physical Bible, it should be on the same page. Matthew 4, verse 23. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Say this with me. When Jesus saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up in the mountain and after he sat down and his his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, And so prior to experiencing the availability of the kingdom of God, these people were among the suffering, the ill, often disregarded, the overlooked. These people were stigmatized, marginalized, ostracized. They were considered to be the have-nots, the outcasts, the lost causes, the outsiders. There are three probable social economic statuses of the listeners the crowd that was surrounding Jesus as he was ministering the kingdom of God and people were healed. The first, somewhere among the peasant class, this constituted the substantial majority of the population having the biggest burden of supporting the state and the privileged classes. The second probable place these people fit, the unclean and degraded class. These individuals occupied a position in society which was clearly inferior to that of the masses of the common people. And the last they might have found themselves within or categorized as is the expendables. At the bottom of the class system, consisting of petty criminals and outlaws, beggars, unemployed itinerant workers, and people who solely live by the wits or by charity. And so now, we understand that this was an agrarian society and wealth was based off of ownership of the land and then also the labor of their hands. And so their ability to cultivate the land was based on their physical labor. And so as we see here, these people were sick, had disabilities, and so because of their their limitedness, as regards to them being able to work for money, you could consider them poor. There was no middle class. Therefore, it was safe to assume that these individuals to whom Jesus was speaking to were literally poor. These were individuals whose hunger for righteousness and God's justice was most likely cultivated in their lived experience of injustice. Historians stated that there were individuals who were commonly discriminated against by the Jewish community during the time of Jesus. Now pause. 
During the time of Jesus, the Jewish community was discriminated against the people on the lower end of the stick. That's interesting. Religious affiliation doesn't automatically excuse us from discrimination. Just because we go to church, just because we're part of a religious environment, that doesn't automatically free us from the biases entrenched in discrimination. Can I say something? Sometimes our religious communities actually fuel discrimination. However, someone say however. Jesus provides a different way. Instead of Jesus centering the powerful, Jesus actually centers the marginalized. That is the way of Jesus. His ministry, this is the beginning of his ministry. And who is he reaching out to? He's reaching out to the person who's oppressed. He's reaching out to the person who is ill. He's reaching out to the person who is on the bottom of the social economic ladder and he's centering them in the beginning of his ministry. Can I ask you an honest question? Who are you centering in your ministry? Who are you centering in your business? Who are you centering in your communities? Jesus' way is counter-cultural. Now, can we be honest with society today? We live in a society that's plagued by interpersonal and systemic injustice. We know this. We see this. Where unjust situations have occurred and wrongs have been embedded in the fabric of society. I love how Proverbs, Solomon puts it in Proverbs 13, verse 23. It says, abundant food is, the, is in the uncultivated ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. Ezekiel 9.9 says, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city is full of injustice. For they say, the Lord has forsaken this land. The Lord does not see. One of the most prevailing questions that humans ask today is, why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things happen to good people? This is a question of justice. Justice is wired in our DNA as image bearers. I want to say that again, justice, that question of why do good things always happen to bad people? We desire justice inherently. It's not something that we have to read a book about and figure out and come alive to. It's wired in your humanity to crave for justice. But the biblical definition of justice is God's ordering of things. Every single human being has an inherent desire for God's justice to be established on earth. Another way to say it is every human being desires the kingdom of God. Every human being. And so the quote that sticks out to me as I was reading, there's this book called Unsettling Truths by Mark Charles and Sung Chong Ron has says, for centuries we have kept hidden the stories of the oppressed people in our society. We have embraced the stories of success and exceptionalism rather than engaging the narrative of suffering and oppression. 
the obsession with the self-elevation of the American church and American society reflects an absence of truth-telling. Someone say truth-telling. The American church has yielded the prophetic voice because it has not spoken a historical and theological truth. The absence of truth has resulted in the presence of injustice. I want to say that again. The absence of truth has resulted in the presence of injustice. This injustice is particularly evident in the systemic racism that often defines American society. Conciliation, not reconciliation, conciliation does not happen without truth-telling. Conciliation without truth is like trying to bring health without a comprehensive diagnosis. There's a quote that comes to mind. Honesty is a natural necessity for rightly relating with people. Doesn't that make sense? In order for us to rightly relate with our neighbors, there has to be the ingredient of honesty. Justice inherently demands honesty. Imagine you going to a court and it's full of lies. It's full of misinformation. Justice will not be held without honesty. You can't have justice without honesty. Now, 2020, we saw a lot of honesty. We saw a lot of brutal honesty. But there's something about the way of Jesus that's a bit different than Fox News or NBC. John chapter 114 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, for me, I struggle with both. <laughs> I don't know about you, but some of, all, some of us struggle with honesty, truth. And some of us struggle with the grace piece. For me, at times, I can be brutally honest without even thinking about the concept of mercy and tenderness. And on other days, I struggle with truth, where because I want to be graceful, I actually tend to withhold honesty. I tend to compromise truth in order to love. And so we feel the tension between grace and truth, don't we? That tension actually is love. Let me say that again. The tension between grace and truth is love. That love is the way of Jesus. And oftentimes we look at tensions as problems to be solved versus realities to be lived in. We actually need to live in the tension of grace and truth. For some of us, we just want to be so brutally honest that we disregard grace, and that leads to us being harmful. And then for some of us, we actually disregard truth in order to be graceful, and that leads us to being dishonest and actually not helpful. Jesus is inviting us to both be helpful healthy, whole. He's inviting us to live in both us being healthy and helpful for people as we speak truth, but then also being graceful to lift them up. This tension is the way of Jesus. And so a question I want to ask you is, where do you find yourself? 
Are you brutally honest where you tend to neglect the tenderness of grace? Or maybe you're graceful at the expense of truth. So when I think about just being honest with this, the third invitation of being honest to self, I want to read Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. And I believe this particular verse helps us to live in the tension. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. It says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly. Someone say, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Man, the way of honesty would actually cause us to first see the speck in our own eyes. To first take the log out of our own eyes so that we can see clearly and truthfully. The wisdom behind this honest evaluation of ourselves will not only empower us to be helpful and not harmful, but also graceful and not judgmental. Can't you think about it? We will see clearly when we take the speck out of our own eyes. In 2020, we saw that there were a lot of beams of logs everywhere, just everywhere, and people calling out for the sake of honesty and truth. And so we started first with the, the honesty of the text, and then we started to see, man, how can we also be honest towards society and others? But I love how the way of Jesus puts the mirror back to ourselves. Because the wisdom in that is that we're able to see clearly when we first are honest with ourselves. One of the greatest lies we can tell is the one that we tell ourselves. Honest feedback actually corrodes self-deception. When we receive honest feedback from people, when we're able to, sometimes for me, I need Shola to tell me how she's experiencing me in order for me to live in truth and live honestly. Because we tend to like to self-afflate ourselves. And, and when we self-evaluate ourselves, we put ourselves higher than reality. And so my own personal struggle as it relates to this justice conversation is I'm Nigerian-American. And so I come from a background that's a bit different than many of you all in the room. I feel like I'm a pilgrim to two worlds, both in Nigeria and also America. And so when I think about the justice conversation, sometimes I'm like, I don't have a voice. I don't have the historical background. I don't have the historical hurt. And so for me, I don't know where I fit in this conversation. And if I were to be honest with myself, I needed people to help me identify the blind spots that I had. Because sometimes culturally, we inherit blind spots. And so when I was 
talking to a friend who unfortunately went through the, the criminal justice system. I remember there was a time around when Freddie Gray was murdered. I said something offhanded. And so he, after three years, was able to have an honest conversation with how I offended him. And so I might be black, African-American, and because of the definition, racism is power plus prejudice. I might not have power. That doesn't free me from the temptation of sin. My sin might not be racism, but I have language for what that sin is. It's a big word, but it simply means actually valuing your culture as superior than someone else's culture. And so that's what I inherited. So when I'm having this conversation with my friend who went through the criminal justice system, he was able to communicate with me and say, hey, bro, you have blind spots because that's not reality. That's not how things happen. You can't just study to perfect yourself and get a good job. Sometimes people have the lower end of the stick, and it's just hard. Oppression is just on their neck. You can't just pick your boots up and just bootstrap your way into success. And that was the mindset that I had because I inherited a cultural blind spot. It's called ethnocentrism, a belief in the superiority of your own culture. It results from judging other cultures by your own cultural ideals. Ethnocentrism is linked to our cultural blind spots. And so I'm in this moment where he's communicating to me this reality of society, and I'm able to have an honest view of myself and how I fit in this world. And I just love how in that moment, he corrected me, and my deception just evaporated. The question I have for you is, in order for us to live in this way of honesty, do you have honest people around you to tell it like it is, to identify the blind spots that you have present in your mindset? Galatians 6.1 says this. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, someone say any sin, whether it's greed, racism, pride, prejudice, and immorality, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are responsive to the guidance of the Spirit are to restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness, not with a sense of superiority or self-righteousness, keeping a watchful eye on yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Can I say this? The kingdom of God is in the business of restoration, not punishment. When we think about justice, we often think about punitive justice. But based off this verse and through the entire narrative of Scripture, Jesus is always desiring to restore the oppressor and the oppressed. The cross is not only meant for the oppressed, it's also meant for the oppressor. That's hard to hear, but that's the honest truth. We're in the business of restoration, not to lean to the left or to the right, but there's another way, and that other way is the kingdom of God. We don't fit in any box. We don't fit in a political box. We live in tension. We live in tension. I love how in the later end of the Beatitudes, it talks about peacemaking, not peacekeeping. A lot of us, oftentimes, we simply just want to keep the peace. 
But as you see in the progression of the Beatitudes, Jesus preparing us for actually making peace, even if that costs us something. The Beatitudes beautifully masters building upon each other. You all had a first conversation on humility, right? Then you had a second conversation on mourning and lamenting. Then you had a second conversation on gentleness, which I want to add, gentleness looks like being a bit flexible. Then we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, 6 on the topic of justice. Without the progression, justice is actually a tool for violence. Without humility, without actually mourning well the grief of the sins that plague our society, without lamenting and without being meek and flexible, justice can actually be a tool for the enemy. But we see in this verse that those who are humble, those who are meek, those who are mourned, it leads us to the place of actually hungering and thirsting for God's justice, not my justice. Because my justice would look like putting people in jail. My justice would look like unforgiveness. Ooh, let me say that again. Oftentimes, our act of, our, our view of justice is bent and embedded in unforgiveness. But God's justice is all based in forgiveness and restoration. And so in order for us to tap into God's justice, we have to lament and grieve. Because it's not until we cry that we're able to see clearly. It's our tears that gives us clarity. It's our tears that when we are able to grieve with our brother who's different than us, when I'm able to sit down over a meal and understand the story of my brother and my sister and understand the issues that they face and it breaks my heart, I get a chance to tap into God's heart. The way of honesty is calling us to go beneath the surface and have these hard conversations. But humility, meekness, and grieving helps our hearts to gain an appetite for God's justice. Now, I want to close with this. In his book, Reading While Black, Dr. Esau McCulley says, Hungering and thirsting for justice is nothing less than the continued longing for God to come and set things right. It is a vision that the just society established by God that does not waver in the face of evidence to the contrary. Mourning is not enough. We must have a vision for something different. Justice is that difference. Jesus then calls for a reconfiguration of the imagination in which we realize that the options presented to us by this world are not all that there is. There remains a better way, and that better way is the kingdom of God. Hungering for justice is hungering for God's kingdom. I want to invite the band to come to the to front, to the front. I just love how Dr. Esau McCulley is talking about a reconfiguration of our imagination. For some of us, sometimes 
we can't hunger for God's justice because we're so locked in to the present reality of injustice. 2020, I was discouraged. 2019, I was discouraged. 2018, I was discouraged. And I don't know about you, after a while of being hungry and not being satisfied, that hunger starts to numb, and I start to lose appetite, and we can start to lose appetite. But I just love how he's communicating. Jesus is inviting us to reconfigure our imagination, to see God's kingdom come to this earth, to see God's ordering of things be established here. So I have a question I want to ask you all. As we receive ministry, where do you sense God calling you to dive deeper in the undercurrent that is the way of Jesus? Maybe it's being honest with the text. Maybe you've been viewing the text from a a Western, me, internal, individualistic perspective. Maybe God is saying, hey, I actually want you to be honest with the text. Or maybe if you're to be honest with the text, you don't really believe all the things that the Bible has to say. Can I say this? God is not afraid of your honesty because he already knows it. He knows your heart. So maybe the call today is he wants you to be honest with the text, to be honest with him. Or maybe you sense the stirring to be honest with society. Maybe you've been in your own bubble, in your own world, focusing on you, that you've neglected what's in front of us. Or maybe you have a specific relationship where God is like, you know what? Of all this talk, there's one person that you're not being honest to, and you sense the spirit just stirring in you that you have to have an honest conversation with that family member, with that friend, with that coworker. But I sense for a lot of people today, Jesus is inviting us to be honest with ourselves. What is our personal struggle? Maybe you're craving for righteousness in your own personal life, and there's that besetting thing that is preventing you from actually living out God's ideal reality for your life. So I want you to just bow your head and just sit before the Lord. Lord, where are you inviting your gaze? Where do you desire to sit with me honestly? Is it with myself, my current circumstances, my current battles, struggles? Maybe it's with a friend, Lord, where do you desire for me to honestly be present? Spirit of the Lord, would you move? Let your loving gaze search our hearts today. Where do you desire honesty to break in? Where are you calling us to dive beneath the surface? Lord, we know that it's going to cost us something. But self-deception costs us more. 
Where do you desire truth to be present? To double-click on self. Maybe instead of God's justice, you're hungering for something else. Maybe it's appetite, and that's the obstacle to justice. Maybe that's crowding out your appetite for God's justice, your own personal desires, your wants, your needs. Maybe it's approval. It's hard for you to walk out God's justice and live in honesty because of the opinions of men. Or maybe it's ambition. If I actually live out this honest way, this just way, maybe that would slow me down on my career ambitions or life ambitions. Whether appetite, approval, or or ambition, what is that particular obstacle for you in hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness and justice? And so I want to invite you all to stand. And so the simple prayer is that God would make room in our hearts for his righteousness, for his justice. And so with your lips, I would love to invite you to talk to the Lord and be honest with your current state. Where are you? He's present in the midst of crowds looking and searching for you. So, Lord, we we pray that you would make room in our hearts for your justice, for your restorative justice that brings about wholeness, healing, and freedom. In Jesus' name.